Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Breaking story about basically the Trumpification of education. This whole scam where people are trying to get their kids into into fancy colleges and stuff like that. It's almost like Trump's worldview and perspective is just like been adopted by the entire country, although I'm guessing this happened long before Trump. But there's, you know, something just entirely consistent about all of this. And to dig into that a little bit, on the line with us is Dr. Justin Frank, MD, psychoanalyst, clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University, author of Trump on the Couch, previously Obama and Bush on the Couch, the two different books. His Twitter handle is Justin Frank MD. Dr. Frank, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's good to be back, Tom. It's been a while since we talked. Seems like only yesterday. Yeah, indeed. The thing that caught my eye. Chauncey DeVega wrote a piece where he had apparently interviewed you, and you had said that Michael Cohen should fear for his life. You want to elaborate on that? Well, I just think that Trump is very much into revenge, like a mob boss would be, and if I were Michael Cohen, I'd be scared, because he's been called, what Trump has done is called him a rat a lot of times, and when you call somebody a rat in certain uh, walks of life that becomes a code word for get rid of him, kill him, exterminate him. You know, so I had I a, that, but he's going to be guarded. I mean, he's going to never have a a free moment around other prisoners. I would think. Yeah. Or, well, actually, or there's talk that he's going to go to a white collar uh, place where it's less likely that you'll get the shiv. But um, re- regardless of how that plays out, it occurred to me. In fact, Louise and I were talking about this last night that. There's probably not a billionaire in America, particularly after looking at what uh, uh, Peter Thiel, I believe it was, did to Gawker, um, you know, not in, in destroying the publication and its, you know, senior people. Um, there's probably not a billionaire in America who at some level doesn't realize that if they really wanted to kill somebody, to discredit somebody, to ruin somebody's life, 
and that's a spectrum, obviously, who doesn't realize that if they wanted to go after somebody in a way that might even be untraceable to them, that that's at the very least a possibility. And I think yes. you know most billionaires know that they have that ability, that kind of superhuman ability to just you know to kill anybody they want. This is also something that mobsters know, right? In fact, this is normal operating business inside the mafia. So what happens if you take somebody who has the psychology and cultural perspective of a mobster and make them a billionaire, which seems to be the case with Donald Trump? Well, what happens is that uh, people who are already mobsters have a very marginalized conscience, what I call superego, so they don't feel guilt. They're worried about getting caught, and they also don't feel shame. So when you have a lot of money, that also affects certainly the capacity for feeling shame, and then their guilt is already compromised to do what they want to do. It has to do with rules and regulations, and unconsciously, rules and regulations come from the days of the Bible, which is the Ten Commandments and certain thou shalt nots, which are rules and regulations for assimilating five-year-olds into society about things they should and shouldn't do. Well, billionaires go beyond that. So they're anti-rule, anti-regulation, anti-authority. In your opening statement about your grandfather that I heard a little bit of while I was waiting to come on, I mean, you talk about people with integrity and who are able to just say no to things and really have uh, an inner kind of compass and moral conscience conscience and i think that that's missing in some people and it gets uh obliterated in early age especially if you grew up in a family where people were abused or victimized and then you end up becoming an abuser yeah i should i should make it clear i'm not uh, accusing peter of having done anything illegal immoral or even I'm wrong not, no, in, he, no, but he in going break, after gawker billionaires can break down companies i know a colleague a billionaire who actually broke down one of the psychoanalytic institutes in the East because he was really angry about something. Right. Yeah, that was about 20 years ago, but it was really quite dramatic. Yeah, it's, I, it's, it's an it example of the great, court. great power that comes with great wealth. And I guess yeah. the question, and again, not <clears throat> suggesting certainly by any means that he was like that, but I'm trying to draw this into the Trump world where Trump claims to be a billionaire. And well, Michael but, Cohen says that Trump is also a mobster. What does that mean? Right. Well, it just means what we just have talked about. He's yeah. a person who is able to feel comfortable living outside the law. I wrote about that a lot in my book, both in a chapter on lying and in a chapter on destructiveness, which has to do with his comfort being destructive. And also, one of the things about being a mobster, or even your friend who is a, supposedly, as you said, you don't want to impugn him at all, he doesn't think of the side effects of destroying a company, which means putting a lot of workers out of work, and really affecting their livelihood and collateral damage. Yeah. Well, I don't know him personally, but I'm guessing that he just figured, you know, they had done harm to him. He was going to do harm to them, which yeah. is a normal human impulse, I think. But this is when that normal human impulse, what I'm talking about here, you know, with the possibility that Trump might even, I'm not sure he'd have to order a hit on Cohen, but literally by by calling him a rat, I mean, anybody who's mobbed up or who's a member of a gang knows that rats are supposed to be killed in jail. I mean, it's just that's that simple, right. is it not? That's right. So he's basically, so here you have the president of the United States putting out a hit order <laughs> on somebody who betrayed him. Would you perceive it that way? And do you think that Trump perceives it that way? I think Trump perceives it that way. I perceive it that way. But he also knows about plausible deniability because 
when Michael Cohen was even interviewed in Congress, he said that's not how it works. He doesn't give an order to do something. He says to you, you know, that thing about, isn't this a great tie? And they say, oh, yes, it is a great tie. I mean, you just right. understand his talk. And so when he says, isn't Michael Cohen a rat? Oh, yeah, he is a rat now that you mention it. Go from there. One of the things that Michael Cohen said that was very troubling was that if Donald Trump lost the 2020 election, there would not be a peaceful transition of power. Now, we have not had a conversation about what might happen if the president refuses to leave the White House. To the best of my knowledge, since the election of 1800, when there was speculation that John Adams was willing to fight it out with Thomas Jefferson over possession of the White House, Adams ultimately didn't. But, um, you know, to the best of my knowledge, that's the only time in, in literally in the history of this country there's been such a conversation do you think it's possible that michael cohen is right that if trump loses in 2020 he could he could shout out to his white supremacist armed buddies and say i need 30,000 people with rifles to surround the white house tomorrow morning well that brings me to the biggest question i think which is yes first of all i think it's a possibility but i really think that what's the biggest driving factor is fear of it being a possibility and that was what allowed Al Gore to give in to George W. Bush in the first place in the Palm Beach, Florida vote counting thing, because he was afraid of having some kind of a civil war when these Carl Rose people were violently beating on the door. I think that Trump has just added so much to the world of divisiveness and fear and camps that even Nancy Pelosi said they'd have to have a really amazing case and have the Republicans join in if they were going to do any kind of impeachment because it would divide the country. That's a right. statement based on fear. Is Pelosi's fear legitimate? Yes. Real world legitimate. I think even Gore's fear was legitimate. The question is, when are you going to face fears? Right. Or are you just going to keep running from them? I mean, well, this is what happened with Neville Chamberlain in Germany. It's just as much more slow motion in this country. So you would suggest, are you suggesting that by not pushing for impeachment right now, in fact, actively discouraging impeachment, Nancy Pelosi is playing the role of Neville, Neville Chamberlain? Yes. That's strong language. That's uh, yes. well, I'm but, just saying yes. But so yes, I, you're I'm you're of the Trump opinion. Powers. Yeah, you're. You, are you of the opinion that on the record right now, Trump has already committed impeachable offenses? As best I can tell, he has. Yes. Unbelievable things. Like, what would happen if any other president two-day yesterday was going to be exposed as owning a massage parlor and giving special places for foreign uh, political people? I mean, and, and making money off of it. I mean, who was going to... What, what well, I remember the outrage in, two, in? in 2000 when Al Gore attended a fundraiser where there was some, either was put on by or there were some people there from Taiwan. And, you know, foreigners can't contribute to campaigns, and apparently they had. And it became this national scandal. Oh, my God, Al Gore's right. in the pocket exactly. of the Chinese. No, no what, what people have forgotten, and I, it's very essential to remember that this taps into parts of our personality. I think we all have an inner Trump in some way or other, because we all have felt frustrated as children. We've all been wanting to just be able to make the rules and do what we wanted to do. I mean, everybody has some of that. 
and uh, anger and hate and stuff. I mean, that's part of being human. But this is not normal. What's happened is not normal. And I think people can't remember that and don't think about that. Yeah, yeah. There's been so much of it that it's starting to feel normalized. It's astonishing. Yes, Doctor, exactly right. Dr. Justin Frank, his uh, new book, uh, Trump on the Couch, and previously Obama on the Couch and Bush on the Couch, professor at Georgetown University, clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science. Dr. Frank, great talking with you as always. Thank you so much. Good talking with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority. And frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call one own gold That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. one own gold On the line with us right now is Ryan Grimm. He is the uh, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept, the uh, co-founder of Strong Arm Press, co-publisher and uh, author of the Mueller Papers. Uh, you can tweet him at Ryan Grimm, R-Y-A-N-G-R-I-M, and strongarmpress.com is the website. Ryan, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. It has. It's been too long. It's great to have you on. So you've published the Mueller papers. What is this? What's the significance of this? Where'd you get the information? You know, just tell us all about it, please. Right. One little clarification. I'm not the, actually the author. The, the technical author, I suppose, would be Robert Mueller. Right. Along with a number of, I'm sure he has ghostwriters in his office who are helping him put it together. But, you know, as it became clear that there was at least a possibility that the Mueller report will not see the light of day, or at least might have to be leaked in order to see the light of day. At Strong Arm Press, we started thinking, well, wait a minute, well, he's actually been publishing pieces of the Mueller report over the last kind of year and a half. Each indictment, each sentencing memo, you know, is going to be the fodder that he uses to eventually put together his report. Now, his report, who knows what it's going to have in it, but if you want to know the grist that he's developed that has been able to be turned into actual indictments, because that's what, you know, the rest of it is interesting. And we should, you know, it's nice to know what all of these different actors and operatives were up to. But if you're curious what the actual crimes are that Mueller has found, it doesn't appear that he's going to find any more. Now, he could always surprise us with a last minute massive sweeping indictment and roundup of half the city. But these are the characters that he's put before judges so far. And all of those indictments are public. They are a real pain to read, though. You have to go searching around, finding the PDFs, download the PDFs. You read it for two pages. If you go away from a PDF on your phone, forget about it. You'll never find your place in there sure. again. And so I, for one, had meant to read a ton of these, but just had never gotten around to it. I said, oh, I've heard that that indictment's actually a good read. I'm going to read it. And then days go by and I don't. So what we did is we just found them all, formatted them, and put our own Mueller report out so to speak. That's extraordinary. In fact, there was some speculation 
that Mueller expected that there would be such opposition to his findings being made public that one of the ways that he has found to get around this, uh, this anticipated problem, particularly watching, you know, what Nixon did back in the 70s and, you know, nearly successfully, that the way that he was going to do this was basically by leaking everything he's finding in the form of these specific indictments, these criminal indictments. There's been over 100 of them, have there not? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's exactly right. And it serves two purposes. So on the one hand, he gets the information out. You know, so people who want to say, well, there were no crimes committed, well, here are the crimes. People who want to say, well, nobody's been indicted for a crime of collusion. That's absolutely true. That's correct. You know, what we have is a lot of peripheral stuff at this point. So it serves his purpose to get it out. President Trump can't stop him from filing a sentencing memo or filing an indictment. But it also kind of whets the appetite of the public. And it makes it harder for people then to suppress the ultimate report. Paradoxically, though, I think it will also, if the final report is published, take some of the air out of it. In other words, if you read this book that we put together called The Mueller Papers, if you read it cover to cover, you come away and be, this is a staggering crime. This is an extraordinary cast of incompetent criminals who came together. And, you know, they should all be tossed out and locked up. But then you realize, well, I kind of knew a lot of this stuff already. And that's how it is likely to be reported if there isn't much new in the Mueller report. There'll be this insane amount of criminality that is exposed in the report. But because we already know about so much of the criminality, say, well, nothing new here. Yeah, it's like the drip, drip, drip has kind of inured us to it. And then on top of that, Trump and Giuliani go out and, well, yeah, of course I did, you know, X, Y, Z. Well, of course, you know, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with uh, taking help from the Russians, uh, you know, et cetera. And, you know, at a certain level, even Nixon wasn't that sociopathic and brazen. I mean, it's just right. mind-boggling. They yeah. were talking with Ryan Grimm. He's the co-founder of the Strong Arm Press, co-publisher of the Mueller Papers. StrongArmPress.com is the website. Ryan, what are the, I mean, you know, you're pretty well informed. I think I am, and, and the listeners to this program, by and large, are on the, in terms of the day-to-day stuff that's been going on for a year or so of, you know, Mueller's uh, various indictments. But what were the things or what are the things that people would find in this book, the Mueller Papers, that you found or refound, as you point out, we kind of all rediscover these things, found or refound that are the most shocking to you, the most amazing, the most breathtaking? I mean, so much of it is so good. And we even included a blurb from Jeffrey Tubin, the New Yorker, calling the Mueller sentencing memos novelistic in quality. (laughs) Just think about this. You know, Roger Stone is not even an extraordinary figure in this crew because they're all such extraordinary figures. To me, when I was going back through it, the indictments, which were sort of pointless but served to get it into the public record, the indictments of the dozen-plus Russian operatives, that indictment is fascinating to read because it relies on both intelligence as well as the investigation that they did to put together a narrative of how the GRU goes about trying to sow discord in a foreign country. I say it's pointless because what are the chances that, you know, these guys are going to actually show up for their court date? You know, it's not strong, but to your earlier point, it gets it out there in public. And this is not something that Putin has done exclusively for Trump or even exclusively for the United States. This is a Russian foreign policy tactic to go in and sow chaos in the domestic politics of countries that it wants to kind of bring down. You know, mm-hmm. Russia very much sees 
geopolitics as a zero-sum game. And so if they can screw up the U.K. and mess around with Brexit, then they win. If they can screw up France and fund some right-wing fascist party, then, then they win. You know, if they can boost some right-wing party in Germany, then they win. In their minds, they win. And so it's important to understand what are the mechanics behind this. And that particular indictment goes through how they create fake social media accounts, how they seed articles, how they then pay to like boost these articles. It goes into their attempts to convert that into protests on the ground mm-hmm. and shows them utterly incapable of doing that. You know, they can build a Black Lives Matter Facebook page and they can schedule a protest, but they can't get more than two or three people to show up, which, you know, which shows you need real organizing, you know, to actually build social movements in a country, which shouldn't be surprising to anybody who's been involved in organizing. But you don't need that if you're just trying to throw junk everywhere and kind of throw dust in people's eyes. So like that one in particular was an interesting read to just to see how Russia sees its role um, in, in, in these shenanigans. Fascinating stuff. The, the new book is The Mueller Papers. It's a compilation of all of the public documents here that, that most of us have forgotten about, never read, yep. overlooked, just heard about, and apparently a hell of a shocking read. Ryan Grimm, yep. the, uh, the, the co-publisher. Ryan, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great talking with you. Strongarmpress.com is the website. Ryan Grimm is the Twitter handle. Welcome back, Tom Harmon here with you. Just a couple quick stories I want to share with you. The Trump administration is planning on using Facebook and Twitter to spy on people who are collecting federal disability payments. Honest to God, 10 million people get Social Security disability payments, and the Trump administration has decided they don't want to pay for this anymore. So if you're on disability and on your Facebook page, you have posted pictures of yourself doing something. Let's say that you're claiming that your back is bad. And on Facebook, you got a picture of yourself, you know, mountain biking or something. They're going to take that picture and deny your claim. Say you're in terrible chronic pain, but hey, you can smile long enough for the camera. That smile may cost you your Social Security. The Trump administration, honest to God, is going after Facebook and Twitter to try to deny people their Social Security benefits and their disability benefits. In Arizona, the Republicans in the state house, the people of Arizona, by a two-to-one margin, two-thirds of the people in Arizona voted to raise the minimum wage to $12 an hour next year. Two-thirds of the people in Arizona voted for this. It was a ballot initiative. The Republicans who control the legislature, oh, the people didn't really mean that. Anybody younger than 22 only gets $7.25 an hour. That legislation is right now before the Arizona House of Representatives. And the National Rifle Association has attacked Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as, quote, a self-absorbed socialist darling. Brilliant. Steve in Lexington Park, Maryland. Hey, Steve, what's up? Hi, Tom. What I called up about is two topics. I think I might have spoken to you about this before. I do believe in changes, the changes that the Democratic Party would like to see. But I'm in the camp that says you should take it slow. For instance... I was an elementary school teacher for 31 years, and we got a brand-new young principal after 15 years working with one principal, and this principal wanted to make major changes very fast, and we on the advisory committee said, no, let's make the changes slow. We go with your change, but let's do it slow. The principal decided to make the changes real fast, and the school went in basically for a couple of years went into a depression because it was not a nice place to work. So I say if you want to make changes, 
Let's go about it slow. Let people get used to the changes before you make the next change. Yeah, That's I think rather than topic. slow or fast, I think that what we should be talking about is what is the appropriate time period. Pete Buttigieg yeah. in the town hall with CNN on Medicare for All made the point that the way to back into that is to simply give everybody the public option tomorrow morning. So anybody who wants to buy into Medicare can, you know, at actual cost, at market cost, which will be 20% below what insurance companies charge because they're allowed by law to skim 20% off the top for stockholder dividends and profits and CEO salaries and things. And so over time, you know, over a period of relatively short period of time, I would think most people are going to end up buying Medicare because it's you know more comprehensive and it's less expensive. Right. Bernie, when he originally proposed it, said, let's just drop the eligibility age by 10 years every year right. or by a decade every year. And that way the Medicare organization can grow year by year large enough to encompass these new people that's not fast or slow steve that's just you know what's the appropriate speed with which do we do things and i don't you know i don't think i disagree with you on that okay also one last thing i heard the word automation mentioned and that right away in my head i remember when we were kids because we're around the same age there was a twilight zone episode where richard deacon i don't know if you remember him from the dick van dyke show Mm -hmm. He was the boss of an organization, and they were quickly replacing all the workers with robots, and everybody complained. Then the show ended showing Richard Deacon in a bar. He was fired because a robot took his management boss position. What I'm saying is, Hey, automation's fine, but management better watch out for their job. Yeah, you're right. AI can replace white-collar jobs perhaps faster than the mechanical automation can replace blue-collar jobs. Steve, great points. Mike in Millbridge, Maine. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hi, Tom. I'm just wondering if my mind isn't working properly, or do people know that the Republican Party is actually a tool of the corporations and the rich? They're only there to pass legislation for the corporations and the rich, and that's all they're there for? Well, I think about, you know, solidly 40%, 30 to 40% of Americans, those people who either are members of the Democratic Party or identify as Democrats, know that and know it well. It's not like this hasn't been known. It's not a secret. It's not a secret. It's just a secret if you're watching Fox News. But, of course, Fox News is owned by a billionaire, Rupert Murdoch, so he's not going to be talking about rich people. Well, they have to keep at least 32% of the people in this country voting for Republicans because they gerrymander and use voter suppression. Well, that's why they're so hysterical about H.R. 1, the Power to the People Act that was passed out of the House of Representatives. Hmm. Mitch McConnell is now saying it'll lead to massive voter fraud. Why? Because because it allows people to vote. It's just crazy. Mike, i got to move along, but thank you. Chris in Oakland, California, listening on AM 910. Hey, Chris, what's up? Tom, I'd like to offer my opinion. I don't believe it's any one thing. I, you mean that's causing people are, to follow Trump? Exa- yes, exactly. Yes, thank you. I think some of it's ignorance. And in that case, at this point, I believe that's willful ignorance. But I think it also, I think there's a, combined, a number of factors. I think, uh, I think dogma plays into a large part of it. And I think there's a degree of schadenfreude as well. These people, they've shown themselves to be pretty nasty and spiteful. And I think it's it's a lot of things, which I think is even more scary because it's more broad ranging and more insidious. Yeah. Well, Um, to the extent that they might be delighting in the pain of others, I'm guessing that they're delighting in the pain of others who are in their minds the other. 
Different from them. A, yeah, it's a case of diminishing returns in their point, yeah. in their case. But I'd like to make one point before I go. I want to say something to all your listeners and to everyone and you as well. I don't want anyone ever, don't anyone ever let you tell you that the blue wave was about wishful thinking. For me, in 2018, as it will be in 2020 and going forward, the blue wave is not wishful thinking. It is a battle cry. Yeah. It has to be a rallying cry. And, and I, I just urge everyone, I don't care what you hear on the news. I don't care where, you, where the polls say, you know, an hour before election closes, you've got to participate. You've got to vote. And I'm stealing your tag. It's your line, but it's so true. Yeah. And uh, I wish you the very best, and I hope for the best for all of us. Thanks, Chris. Very well said. Thank you. Vincent in Carson City, Nevada. Hey, Vincent, what's up? Yeah, hi, Tom. Yeah, in answer to your question, are Trump voters just stupid or ignorant? I've maintained for years that it's ignorance. There's one conspiracy that I believe in. I'm not a conspiracy nut, but one I do is that in the late 60s, early 70s, the dumbing down of America started happening, which allowed Ronald Reagan. We just went from dumb to dumber to dumbest, from Reagan to GW to Trump. Well, it was sort of a two-step process. In 1976, the Supreme Court struck down 100 years of campaign finance legislation, and in particular struck down a bunch of reforms that were passed in 74 after the Nixon scandals with a decision called Buckley versus Vallejo, in which they said that if a billionaire wants to own a politician or wants to carpet bomb a community with the television advertising on behalf of a politician or a ballot initiative or whatever, that they may do that without limit because money is the same thing as speech. And so it's protected by the First Amendment. Two years later, in a decision called First National Bank versus Bilotti, they extended that from billionaires to corporations as well. So in 76, 78, basically, the Supreme Court handed our political system over to those with the most money. And then Reagan came along and in 87 stopped the Fairness Doctrine, up the Fairness Doctrine, which required stations when they air editorials, their own, the opinion of the station that they air a balanced point of view, somebody who's got the opposite point of view. And it also required radio and television stations to actually have news as a way of maintaining their licenses. And those two things were the, in my mind, those were the two, the two major points that brought us Reaganism and that then brought us the dumbing down of the American people. And then, you know, you can add to that Bill Clinton in 96 signing the Telecommunications Act of 96, which allowed for the massive consolidation of uh, media in the United States. And, and here we are. Vincent, thanks for the call and thanks for listening to SiriusXM. Stealing data from unsuspecting people on public Wi-Fi is one of the simplest ways for hackers to make money. When you leave your internet connection unencrypted, you might as well be writing your passwords and credit card numbers on a huge billboard for the rest of the world to see. That's why I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Turning on ExpressVPN protection takes only one click. Using ExpressVPN, I can safely surf even on public Wi-Fi without having my personal data stolen. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection that I have. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com tom. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tom to learn more. 
Congressman Ro Khanna is on the line with us. He represents the 17th District of California. He's the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov is his website. And you can tweet him at rep as in representative Ro, R-O, Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A. Congressman, welcome back. Great to be back on, Tom. Great to have you with us. It's daylight savings time. I'd like to know when we're going to do away with this insanity and just go to standard time forever. You know what the funny thing is? Kansas and Chew, who's an assembly member in my district, has proposed this for every year. And I'm on the federal bill, actually, to do away with it, as is Marco Rubio out of all folks. I always give him a hard time saying, this is your priority, but now I'm going to tell him Tom Hartman shares your view, and maybe this is more of a priority than we all realize. Well, you know, it's actually killing people. There are several hundred accidents every year that science says wouldn't have happened if people weren't feeling jet-lagged. I mean, car accidents, people die. It has a measurable negative outcome. Now that we learn that the guy who originally proposed it back during World War I actually he was a businessman he actually wanted it because he wanted to be able to play golf after work because it extends evening wow. hours oh i didn't realize that i always thought it was something to do with farmers and others i didn't know no realize. no it was it, the yeah. farmers the farmers were offended by it because they work based on the sun they don't care what time the clock says when the sun comes right. up the cows need to be milked the theory was that the way that this guy sold this was that the factories uh, will not have to pay so much for electric lighting during World War I during this time of crisis as we were making war material because people can work later into the evening and the light will still be out. Well, that logic holds if your factory is only running at night, but they were also running in the morning and you don't actually get more daylight. But it turns out that the guy who was pushing it was pushing it because he wanted to be able to play golf when he got home from work. So. Wow. Well, that puts it in a whole new perspective. Well, this yeah. gives me more urgency. I'm going to talk to my team about the bill okay. and where we are on it. But I'm guessing that that is not at the top of your mind on <laughs> most days. <laughs> well, just the, the president's budget comes out. And here's the irony about the president's budget. Even the Republicans are opposed to half of it. I mean, every year the president cuts NIH funding. And most appallingly, he cuts the one program in the federal government dealing with manufacturing, the Manufacturing Extensionship Partnership. And, you know, it's one of the most outrageous budget documents. But people should read it just to get a sense of how right-wing the president is. And we're going to be debating that uh, this week in Congress. Right. And just to summarize it very, very quickly, Trump is proposing to increase military spending substantially, about $30 billion more than $34 billion more than the military has asked for. And he wants to cut over the next decade $1.1 trillion from Medicaid and health programs. He wants to cut $327 billion from anti-poverty programs, $207 billion from student loan programs, and he wants to cut $200 billion from the Federal and Postal Retirement Service, which is all just nuts. And he wants to lock in trillion-dollar-a-year budget deficits so that they can scream even louder on the old uh, Jude Wininsky two Santa Claus theory from 1976, uh, scream even louder when a Democrat gets into the White House, which in all probability exactly. is going to happen in a year and a half. So. The one thing, Tom, I do think is important, uh, some of us, uh, Bernie Sanders, myself, and a few others, have opposed this president's defense increase. But a lot of Democrats have actually, they oppose the other parts of the budget, but they vote for the defense increase. And, you know, it's so outrageous. I mean, I thought the defense budgets were high to begin with, but to be voting for this president's defense budgets, I think, is just unacceptable. Yeah, I'm wondering how much... I mean, the defense industry just lavishes, pours money on Washington, D.C., and I'm wondering how much of that is starting to go into the Trump administration. Anyhow, let's pick up some phone calls here. Joe in Cupertino, California, you are on the air with Congressman Khanna, who I think is your congressman. Good morning, Congressman. Good morning, Good morning. Congressman. Good morning Tom. 
and congratulations on the, your vice chairmanship with the uh, Bernie Sanders campaign. I appreciate that very much. I wanted to ask you about uh, your opinion on Trump and Korea. I'm really concerned, as, as I'm sure you are as well, with the, the uh, Mueller report coming out that something might happen on the peninsula that might cause us to change what appeared to be a really close ability to maybe sign a peace agreement. But I guess that's out the window. Um, but he's pretty radical. So I wondered if you could just give me your opinion there. And again, congratulations. And we're going to get this done. And, and Congressman, didn't you uh, go down and talk with Jimmy Carter? In fact, you used to work at the Carter Center? I had interned with at the Carter Center. I had a great honor uh, last week of uh, going down and seeing President Carter. We had a half-hour meeting. He's still uh, brilliant. And he talked about uh, how he and Kim Jong-un's grandfather actually had come to an agreement, a 12-part framework, uh, which he then gave to Bill Clinton, uh, but for whatever reason it never was fully implemented, and then John Bolton came in uh, and killed the framework. So I said to President Carter, who at the Carter Center can I work uh, with to reintroduce this framework. And he started laughing and he said, well, me, because no one else understands it. Uh, and so we're now working with his close aide to try to reorient the framework. Uh, you know, I'd gone down because I had offered a resolution on uh, finally ending the armistice between North Korea uh, and the United States. I mean, we're still technically at war and having right. a peace resolution. And President Carter had supported that. But he said, well, you can't just put out this peace resolution. It's sort of uh, like putting out an answer to a math problem without showing your steps. You've got to show how are we going to get to this point. And so we're now working on uh, a concrete framework of uh, what the United States can do, what North Korea can do that can get us uh, to the resolution. Uh, I believe, and I, I, I don't want to put words in the president's mouth, so let, it, let me just say I believe that John Bolton has uh, been the most uh, – responsible for the scuttling of this agreement, and he's never wanted us to have an agreement with North Korea. Yeah, John Bolton never saw a war he didn't want. Buddy in Tucson, Arizona, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hi, uh, Congressman. It's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure to talk to both of you. Um, I want to define democratic socialism in three words. We the people. Sure. Well, look, I think our platform, the Democratic Party platform, is We the People, where we're talking about $15 minimum wage, increasing wages for the middle class, providing health care, Medicare for all, providing uh, expanding Social Security. I was on MSNBC last night, and the Trump's communications director uh, starts saying how their whole campaign is going to be against socialism. And I pointed out to him that, you know, they called Barack Obama a socialist twice. They called Hillary Clinton a socialist. They called Truman a socialist. They've called FDR a socialist. So I just think these attacks are ridiculous and aren't going to fly, uh, given that most programs that the Democratic Party is talking about, that Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren are talking about, are programs that are going to help the middle class earn what they deserve and have economic security. Al in Wills Point, Texas. Hey, Al, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. What I wanted to do was just point out something. They're calling us socialist, which I would really rather be called a democratic socialist because that's truer to the definition of what we are. But why don't we call them what they are, fascist? Is it time to use the F word and or simply start demonizing the worst aspects of capitalism, Congressman? Well, look, I'm uh, not for uh, resorting to their tactics. First of all, their charge on the merits is absurd. 
socialism, by definition, is talking about the use of the public takeover of the means of production, and no one in the Democratic Party believes that government needs to take over small businesses and businesses in this country. So I don't think we should use rhetoric that is not precise just because they do, but I think we can talk about the systematic corruption in their administration, the fact that they basically have people there who are for private gain uh, compromising uh, national security and undermining democracy, the systematic abuse of power and overreach, uh, and their disenfranchisement of millions of Americans. And to me, those all have huge factual basis and are turning off a large number of people, even people who voted for the president last time. Laura in Hazel Park, Michigan, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. I wanted to talk about Trump's slush fund. He passes an emergency that we know is not an emergency. And where does he go to get the money? From the defense budget. So now he's figured out, hmm, can't get Congress to move, so we'll just put all this money into the budget. And then I can just dip into it whenever I feel like it. You're suggesting that his increasing the defense budget beyond what the DOD wants is creating a slush fund for himself. Exactly. Okay, Congressman? And that's what I truly think it is. Yeah, Congressman, your thoughts? There's a lot to what the caller has to say in terms of his trying to increase defense and then use it for whatever purpose. I will point out that I think our generals have engaged in almost passive resistance of this president because the president has asked for a list of projects under the national emergency uh, from the generals, from the Pentagon, saying what money can I redirect from military construction towards building this wall? Uh, And everyone knows that's illegal. You cannot redirect money from military construction to domestic projects. It's against the law. And so you have the irony in this country of the Pentagon basically standing up for a constitution against a civilian elected president. Yeah. Do you think that the military is actively pushing back or is this all kind of in the background and they're trying not to irritate Trump? I think they're concerned. I mean, I think case law is so clear, and these are conservative justices as well, that the military cannot enforce domestic law and that they cannot redirect funding for domestic law. What the president is really asking them to do is violate their oath of office and break their constitutional obligations. And so my, if I were a general or if I were running the Pentagon, I think I'd be concerned about my own reputation and they're trying to do as much as they can. Look, now that Mattis is no longer there, I'll tell you, when he used to come and talk to Congress, he used to complain, especially when we were behind closed doors about the president. So I think these folks are in uh, a very difficult situation. Yep. Jill in Green Bay, Wisconsin. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Well, hello, gentlemen. I wanted to bring up with the military budget that Trump is proposing, a great way to counter that might be the audit that was done. And I think it was done on the Pentagon that showed tremendous amount of money just vanished. And we need more audits like that. We need audits, and there's been financial mismanagement, but there has also been concentration of the defense industry that has jacked up prices on almost every part that is supplied to the military. Elizabeth Warren and I and Tim Ryan did a letter pointing out Transdime and how uh, calling for an investigation on how they were increasing prices for many of the parts. And there was a report that was just released showing that 
for almost 95% or more of their parts, they were overcharging systematically. Uh, this is a huge issue in the military. Harry Truman basically became president uh, with the Truman Commission when he exposed defense contractors for ripping off the American people at the time uh, during World War II. Uh, and I think it's time for something analogous to that Truman Commission, where we can look at how defense contractors are profiting at the expense of the American public and ripping off the taxpayer and the military, leading to these bloated budgets. Tarek in Griffin, Georgia. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hey, um, Rokana, it's really an honor uh, to be speaking with you. First, I want to th- like thank you for giving a, like, a light boatman's speech for Bernie Sanders in one of his rallies. You were like the AOC. A lot of people don't know, but you were like the AOC before AOC was AOC. But my question is, what can we expect to see forth in the Green New Deal with my job? I'm in the trucking industry, and, you know, autonomous trucks are already, you know, hitting the road on I-10. So, and I don't see too many policies. Some politicians, you know, you guys like you and... AOC and Andrew Yang, but um, is there going to be anything to help out our industry along, you know, along with other industries that might be dying away due to this technology? Because when manufacturing left Detroit, you know, we know what happened there. Well, sir, I appreciate it, and I appreciate you raising this issue. We need to have first thoughtful regulation and, and safety regulation. In my view, as we move towards autonomous vehicles, that doesn't mean we won't still need someone in a truck, particularly to to manage the loading and offloading, uh, even if it's being done by a robot, and to make sure that the truck is not malfunctioning. For example, we're on an airplane. When you fly, a lot of the landing and takeoff is automatic. I still am very grateful that we have a pilot there. So I think having safety regulation is important. Second, I think we have to really think about, well, what type of jobs are still going to be available in trucking? And we'll see that some of the long-haul trucking may be most automated, but they're not going to be able to automate the, we're a long, long way off from them being able to automate a delivery into neighborhoods and the last few miles of trucking. And so I think we have to be preparing people also for the positions that are going to be most needed. But unfortunately, Congress hasn't been really thinking long-term about the regulations and the strategy that's going to be needed. Does your current office chair support you? I mean, if you're lucky, maybe it goes up and down, but can you sit in it for hours before it becomes uncomfortable? You know, I I broke my back skydiving back when I was 20 years old, and finding a good chair has been a lifelong struggle. The X chair has this dynamic variable lumbar support. They call it DVL. The X chair's DVL was designed to adjust to you, and every other part of the chair can be custom adjusted to fit you. That's why the X chair is equally supportive, whether you're 5'2 and 110 or 6'4 and 250. And now with the introduction of the X basic model, there's an X chair for every body type and every budget. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and pay as little as 30 bucks a month. Take your comfort and productivity to the next level for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. X-Chair's on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWHEELS and you'll receive a free set of the new X-Wheels with your chair. xchairtom.com. Charles in Opelaka, Florida, listening on Sirius XM. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hi, good afternoon, Congressman Khanna. Good afternoon, Charles. Okay, yeah. I love your show, Tom. I'm just calling because I was very alarmed over the weekend. I mean, I just got this shiver up my spine. I've been paying attention to what's been going on in India and Pakistan with the downed Air Force pilot and being him being returned back to India. 
safely. And what I realized and I didn't understand was, there, is there some type of campaign going on for Modi to be reelected? Was this something that, yes. that they staged, that, that Donald Trump can also stage with Panama? Because, I mean, you know, if, if his numbers are tanking, is this something that he would do as far as, you know, trying to start something with Panama to bring up his numbers and make him seem like a, a wartime general? You, oh, you, mean, you mean Venezuela, Charles? I'm sorry, Venezuela, yes, yes, please. Well, Charles, I uh, appreciate the question. Let me address both. It's something I obviously know quite a lot about and care about. My grandfather uh, spent time in uh, Gandhi's independence movement and was uh, part of uh, pre-partition India and Pakistan. He was born in Lahore and then went uh, to India. And he grew up in a tradition uh, in the subcontinent of pluralism. uh, And when Nehru was the first prime minister of uh, uh, really understanding and respecting uh, different minority uh, perspectives. I think, unfortunately, uh, India has moved into a, a direction currently of uh, sectarianism and nationalism in its politics, uh, fueled in some parts by uh, by Modi. Uh, and while the politics of the area are very complicated and the conflict with Pakistan, I don't think Modi uh, is helping the situation. Uh, and it very well may be that he's appealing to nationalism uh, prior to, to the election. The same thing, I think, uh, analogous, uh, the analogy is very appropriate with Venezuela, where Trump has basically outsourced policy to uh, Rubio in Florida uh, because of the Venezuelan American population and his hopes for 2000, the 2020 election. And here you have a situation uh, where the our intervention is only going to uh, make things worse. I mean, put aside one's views on Madero, and I uh, think Madero has been guilty of a lot of failed policies and uh, has violated human rights. But for when the United States goes and tries to uh, intervene and appoint the Speaker of the House or uh, declare that the Speaker of the House, Guaido, uh, is the new president, that only inflames the Madero base and allows Madero to be go to people and, and be even stronger. And so uh, both the uh, Trump policy is, is counterproductive, and it's being driven by domestic politics. David, in Connecticut. Your explanation a couple of weeks ago about the Microsoft trust busting in, uh, 20 years ago has motivated my call today, because I think you're one of the smartest people in Congress. FDR said when he passed Social Security that it was aggressive tax on labor, but he did it for political reasons. Today, you know, if you count FICA, Medicare, and state and, and workmen's comp and all that, labor is taxed at 10%, while a machine you don't even have to pay for with depreciation rules for a year and a half. It just doesn't seem to me that with mechanization, AI, and automation coming online, that workers should be more expensive than machines. Well, I appreciate it. I didn't catch your name, sir, but I appreciate your point very, very much, because you're absolutely right. Our tax code right now is favoring capital expenditure over human expenditure, and at a time when we should be doing exactly the opposite, where you have automation and the returns of capital are higher than ever, why is it that, as you point out, we have tax breaks for depreciation, but we don't have tax incentives for corporations to invest in the education or workforce development or child care of their employees? It's a total misalignment of incentives favoring capital over labor. And your point on the Microsoft case, I mean, that's a case where I tell people if you wouldn't have had Google if you didn't have the Microsoft antitrust case. Microsoft, very simply put, wanted everyone in this country 
to use Internet Explorer as a web browser. And if they had done that, and if you didn't have Netscape and other competing web browsers, the next step would have been that every web browser would have had Bing Search in it. And all of us would have been using a computer that had Windows, Internet Explorer as our browser, and Bing Search. And you would never have had Google. But uh, Joe Klein and the Antitrust Division said, uh, you can't do that, Microsoft. You can't force people to buy a particular browser just because they're buying your Windows. And we need now to make sure that for the new startups that you don't have companies being able to privilege their own platforms, and that requires strong antitrust enforcement. If you've got a factory with, you know, 100 employees and you bring in a a robot to do the work of 10 of them, uh, you now have 10 fewer people paying into Medicare and Social Security. Why not have the robot pay 10 times every year what those people would have paid into Medicare and Social Security? Bill Gates has said that we ought to be taxing robots at some level, which makes up for that kind of expense. And, you know, I don't know what the appropriate level is, but one can make an argument, and certainly one should make an argument that you shouldn't get a depreciation for the robot. I mean, the irony right now is if you bring in a robot to replace people, you could probably write that off as a sort of a capital expenditure where you don't get that incentive for any investment in workers. Right. Amen. George in Alsip, Illinois. George, you're on the air with Congressman Rokana. Before I get to my point, uh, one of the ironies of listening to radio in Chicago is that we can hear the brilliant Congressman Ro Khanna with Tom, but we also have a longtime conservative broadcaster on the radio here named Ro Khan. <laughs> That's weird. A points apart point of view. Anyway, what I wanted to ask is this. Tom has done a great service to his longtime listenership by regularly educating us on the invidious 2006 Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act and the fact that uh, the post office for 10 years or more would have been in the black without this legislation. What I'd like to know is, is that act still in effect? And if it is, what are the Democrats going to do about repealing it? And if it isn't, what are they going to do about moving all the money that was sequestered into long-term postal retirement and repurposing it for the post office to use for other purposes. Tom, do you want to take this? Because i got to be honest, I don't know the details of that act. Sure. Yeah, what, just, just a, a real quick recap. Back in 2006, the post office was making a profit, and they came out with a proposal to, they had the largest fleet of cars, gasoline vehicles, in the United States. And they came out with a proposal to make them electric. And the Republicans freaked out and passed this law that says that the post office has to set aside $5 billion a year every year for the next decade. I think it was passed through budget reconciliation. $5 billion a year every year for the next 10 years for the retirement benefits of postal workers who will retire 75 years from now. So literally it was for people who had not yet even been born. And the whole reason was to starve the post office so they couldn't do this electric vehicle fleet, in my opinion. And that, I thought, ended in 2017. And But I understand that it got revived, and I'm not sure how or why. So I don't know the answer to the second half of the question myself. I'm sorry. Well, I, I'm going to have our staff look into it, because that is uh, ridiculous if they were going to disincentivize the 
post office from investing in electric vehicles. I mean, if anything, we need to uh, do more of that. And uh, we only have 1% of our fleet as electric vehicles. Uh, with the cost of lithium-ion battery going down, we should be investing far more. Uh, it shouldn't be that the largest electric vehicle manufacturers are all in China, which is currently the case. I mean, we're in a green energy race competitively as other people figure out that uh, the economics mean that you're going to have alternatives to coal and oil, uh, and America should be winning that. It, it makes perfect sense that we would want our post office or military to be uh, leading in investments in that. So I will have my staff look into that and see if any repeal is needed. Thank you, Congressman. What do you think about incentives in general? How do we electrify our transportation system? One bill I'm working on with Ed Markey says if you're going to have a tax refund for an electric vehicle, make it at the point of purchase, so it's not just for tax credits, and make it linked to domestic manufacturing. So you could put people at GM back to work to make electric SUVs if it's at the point of purchase and it is linked to domestic manufacturing. That's just one example, but I think there are a whole host of other similar policies we could have. Yeah, amen. It's crazy that we're subsidizing the fossil fuel industry to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars a year, including as part of our military budget, and we're not subsidizing the things that will save us, literally. Kevin in Hempstead, New York. Kevin, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Congressman, I'd like to ask you a question. What do you think about ADLS? And let me let me uh, let me go on before you answer that question. You have a group of people in the United States. They're African American descendants of slaves. They've had the biggest Holocaust in American world history, actually. And it's still going on today. You got most of the people on the swimmer are black people. At what point do these people actually get their reparations? First, let me say I support reparations. I'm on the Conyers bill to study the issue. The question is, what form should reparations look like? I mean, what Senator Sanders has said is one form is doing what Jim Clyburn wants, which is making sure that most of the federal resources, at least a significant chunk of the federal resources, 10 percent, are going to communities with systematic poverty to invest in education and infrastructure and health care. And those communities happen to be significantly African-American. Another form could be supporting the HBC use. The one place I would disagree with you, Kevin, is uh, the studies show that African Americans tend to be the most patriotic Americans of all of us. So I, I, I don't think that this is about making sure that they remain patriotic. The, the, the studies are overwhelming. They are very, very patriotic. The, this is about making sure that we're dealing with systematic inequality to provide people with opportunities and recognizing that race plays a significant role in that. Yeah, now even David Brooks, the conservative columnist, is coming out and saying, time to look at reparations. And it's important to realize that reparations, people think of reparations, and they say, okay, does that mean people get a check? And that's often not the way the most thoughtful people are thinking about reparations. It's one way of thinking about it. But you, you talk to people like Cornell West or uh, others, and they'll tell you what one way of reparations is. What is our program for jobs? What is our program for education? What is our program for health care in communities that have faced redlining, that have faced segregation, and, and recognizing that we may need significant more investment in communities where there is a significant African-American population to overcome racism and create opportunity. Bob in Alliance, Ohio. Hey, Bob, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Hello, Congressman. Hi, Bob. I'd like to know, uh, this money that Trump supposedly got from FEMA for damages to his place down in Florida, 
is Congress going to go after him and try to recover that money since they've said that there was not enough damage to qualify for the amount that he got? And if they do recover it, will the money, they'll make sure money gets sent where it's supposed to go? Well, Bob, I think Congress should certainly look into that, uh, along with a, a host of other conflicts of interest and financial mismanagement issues that this administration has had. But the bigger point, in my view, is uh, why is it that FEMA's response uh, has been so inadequate when it comes to Puerto Rico, uh, and you have people there who are literally still facing uh, malnutrition, lack of electricity, lack of uh, uh, education, uh, and we aren't doing anything. So I, my focus is on making sure that FEMA is uh, r responding appropriately to the crisis there. Les in Paella, Washington. Les, you're on the air with Congressman Akana. Yes. Hi, thank you. Um, I was uh, kind of a little segment of Democracy Now!, and they were discussing the detainment and harassment of reporters and lawyers who are working with the immigrants trying to seek asylum. So consequently, they're spying on them and <clears throat> detaining them at the border. Do you know anything about it? Well, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, this administration has had a policy of intentional cruelty. And by that, I mean, uh, this isn't cruelty by accident. What they want is to provide a disincentive for people coming here, even legally. And so they want to show uh, as much uh, uh, cruelty as possible to disincentivize people from coming. And they distort things. I mean, I read somewhere that we have about 20,000 asylum uh, cases that we grant in a year. Think about that. In a country of almost 330-plus million, we're taking 20,000 asylum grantees. And yet, we made such a big issue over people who are coming here for asylum. So we need to uh, investigate this. We had in the oversight hearing already, uh, oversight committee, a hearing on what's going on in the border. And I'm going to push that we look into also uh, how p the administration is treating lawyers and folks who are uh, assisting folks who are processing their cases legitimate really through the asylum process. Gail in Antelope, California. Congressman, I wanted to find out, I understand that FEMA had allocated funds to California for repairs to the Oroville Dam that had the severe damage. Now yes. they're with refusing to re provide those funds to California, and I heard that the state is trying to sue them. Um, what's with that, and is there anything Congress can do to get those funds released for repairs? Well, we're already trying. Our delegation has written a letter to try to make sure we don't lose that funding. This administration has targeted California. They've targeted blue states. They've targeted the FEMA funding. They've targeted money for high-speed rail. It makes no economic sense. Of course, California is almost... 15% uh, of GDP of this country, a lot of the uh, innovation and economic growth, the largest uh, state in terms of economic contribution. But this administration doesn't care. They view it as a blue state and one that they're going to penalize. I don't think I've ever lived through a president or an administration that has been that overtly discriminatory based on political allegiance and that oblivious to investments that would help the United States. It truly is extraordinary. Congressman, thanks so much for being with us today. It's uh, just absolutely wonderful that you come on this program and do this National Town Hall with us every other week. I really yeah, appreciate it. It's really a pleasure. I learned so much from the people who call in. Congressman Ro Khanna, his website, Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. You can tweet him at Rep Ro Khanna, R-O Khanna. Yeah. 
We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 